morning. If you would find John chapter 5, John chapter 5 verses 1 through 15 will serve as our text this morning. I'm going to read through verse 17 where the break is just so that we get a sense of the overall context and feel it. So beloved, hear the word of the living God from John chapter 5 verses 1 through 17. Well, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, well who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself and working. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, and let's ask him again for help. Father, we add our prayers again to the harmony of prayers from today, that we are a needy people, and we need you. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us, Holy Spirit, come and speak John 5 to us. And all that you intend, intended for this chapter to be, we pray that you would preach it to our hearts and apply it. That the man behind this pulpit would decrease. That Christ would increase. That we would behold him. That we would be conformed into his image. We need your help to see the glory of Jesus our greatest need this morning, oh God. We pray that you would help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we walked through John chapter 4 with Jesus as he healed the nobleman's son. And this, according to verse 54 in John 4, was the second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. We also saw that the nobleman was provoked to saving faith. Again, the purpose of the sign, because of what Jesus had done, 
he and his household believed. They said Jesus is the Messiah by their faith. It was real. It was not a fake faith. And this is what John wants, isn't it? This is why he wrote the gospel. It's good for us to be reminded again. Matt read it last week, and I think almost every week since we've started it has been read, that it's good for us to hear again why John wrote the things he did. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we read, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's, that's John's laser-focused purpose agenda. It's not, hey, John, why did you write this book? You could have put all kinds of things in there. Why did you write the things that you put in here? He doesn't reply, really, there was no reason. I just took things that I saw and just kind of threw them into a book. Thought it would be helpful. It's the complete opposite. He has a purposed agenda. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He wants his readers to know Jesus. That's his heart. Is Jesus just a religious leader? Was he just a great man? Was he a heroic man who, who pushed against the establishment? Well, John, the human author, places his words in careful order in his purpose statement to point to the glorious reality that Jesus Christ is not a heroic leader or just another religious leader, but he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we, the readers and hearers of John's gospel today, must reckon with his purpose statement. I've quoted this poem often from this pulpit. John Newton's hymn says it's best when we think about John's purpose statement. What think you of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him as Jesus appears in your view. As he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you, and mercy or wrath are your lot. We all must reckon with this. Who is Jesus? Well, as we enter into John 5, John's purpose statement looms in the background as we read, and we see another healing by Jesus, which points us to something greater, namely life in his name. It's the third sign. But this time, I believe the text speaks to a very different outcome. And the timing of this miracle, this sign, sets the stage for the opposition that will now follow Jesus through the rest of the book and ultimately to his death. Well, as we walk through this passage today, I just want us to consider three headings. We're just going to walk right through the passage. One, suffering. In verses 1 through 9, 2, Sabbath, and then 3, sin and the Savior. So suffering, we'll consider the man's healing. 2, the timing that had happened on the Sabbath. And then finally, in that second meeting, sin and the Savior found in verse 14 and 15. Well, let's considering the suffering that we find in the first nine verses. 
Well, John tells us that after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what the feast was. A lot of people speculate about a lot of different things, but we just know that he came up during a feast. And he was in this place called Bethesda, and there was a multitude of people who were sick, lame, blind, and withered. He notes the Sheep Gate. That was in northern Jerusalem. And this pool that he notes had five colonnades or five columns so you can picture five columns by the pool had a shelter on it where all of these sick and lame people came so you have all these numerous people they're desirous to have their infirmities healed can you picture it they're lying in wait looking for relief they're sitting under this shelter they're desperate in their condition sick and they want to feel better, blind and want desperately to have sight, withered and lame wanting to be restored to a healthy and wholesome condition. Well, as we move through the text, let me just make a note about verses 3 and 4. You'll notice that I did not read them. Uh, the New American Standard does include them. And there is a note off to the side. It's bracketed, as you've, if you probably have seen, that the earliest manuscripts did not include these verses. The ESV leaves them out completely. I believe there's a footnote there. Just a note about those verses. We're not going to talk about textual criticism today. But we do know that there was a belief, based on verse 7, that there was something about the water that they thought, mystically, traditionally, healed the people, the lame man who's about to be healed, wanted to be put in that water when it got stirred up, but he said another steps down before me. So we do know that people back then believed that there was something in the water. Now, historians tell us that there was some mysticism related to around, maybe it was the angels that stirred the water, and we think that maybe over time that's how it ended up into uh, this manuscript, but it's not in the earliest. But again, the focus is not on the water, but on Jesus. History also tells us that the pools were fed, likely by Artesian springs, and springs do make waters swirl. So it's very, um, uh, it's very possible that what they were dealing with were springs, minerals. Some people were getting some healing, some relief, maybe temporarily from the water. Well, the man that we're introduced to in verse Five believed in the healing powers of the stirred water. He had been lame for 38 years, likely paralyzed in some way. He needs help to get into the pool, so he's paralyzed. He doesn't have any friends to put him in. 38 years, think about that. It doesn't say 38 years from birth, we don't know. But if you're 10 years old, paralyzed until 48 years old. If you're 20, 58. If you're 35, to 73 you start thinking about 38 years 38 years is a long time to not have the use of your legs or partially your body 38 years prevented perhaps from getting into the one place that you believed would heal your body water stirred he's left behind he's never first in line and if he is they're running over him because he can't put himself in He's unable to help himself, helpless, infirm, powerless, feeble. What kind of hopelessness does that breed for a man, for a person? He's utterly hopeless. He's looking for rescue, and from the passage, we know that he's 
looking for wholeness in a place that is uh, via superstition. He's looking in the wrong place. Well, verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Well, Jesus enters the scene in verse 6, and it is wonderful news for the lame man. Jesus' heart of compassion, you can see it, is drawn to a place like this. Those most in need, we see it all throughout the Gospels, that he moves, initiates movement towards the outcasts. So Jesus sees him lying there, and he knew he'd been in that condition for a long time. There's a multitude of people there, it says. But Jesus selects this man specifically. He knows him. He has some knowledge about him. It's it's personal. He has knowledge of his condition. And he says those words. Do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? The man doesn't answer Jesus' question. If you notice, he, he focuses on the pool and the water again. Presumably wanting Jesus to put him in. Well, Jesus doesn't address this. Only speaking to him powerfully, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And it's instant obedience. Instant. Immediately. Now that's power. He raised the man. Complete, holistic, physical healing. He's not staggering around like a baby fawn after being born or a baby calf. You've seen him. They're kind of staggering around. I broke my, my leg, my uh, tibia and my fibia when I was uh, in sixth grade. Had a cast on for three months. And when I got out of that cast, I limped around for months. This man's not going to physical therapy with Stephen Chipman. He's instantly healed. Instantly strong. It's complete. He's carrying his mat. Jesus tells him to pick up your mat and walk. Does this not make you marvel again, Christian, at your redemption? Do you see in this miracle, this sign, the the, the picture of God's salvation? Do you see in the physical healing here your own spiritual healing? In your sin, worse than 38 years of any lameness, completely dead and hopeless according to Ephesians 2, unable in your natural state of hatred to God to raise yourself, completely and utterly corrupt and condemned by the God who made you, worshiping the creature, Romans 1 says, rather than the creator. But do you see the mercy and the compassion of Jesus in your salvation? He didn't heal the man because he was special. He had compassion, certainly stirred by his love, And he loved you. He moved towards you. He hunted you down like the Samaritans in John 4 that we heard from Pastor Jordan, seeking you out to be a worshiper of the one true God. He healed your blindness spiritually to believe the gospel and drink deeply of his own joy. Like the man in John 9, he gave you ears to hear and to say, Lord, I believe. 
Through his death on the cross, you were released from your sins by his blood, as Revelation 1 tells us, declared righteous and raised to newness of life because of his resurrection, like the sheep in John 10. You were made to hear his voice and you follow after him. He spoke to you. He spoke to you, rise. And you got up. Powerful voice. The Lord initiated that grace towards you and poured out his love for you. A lame man, even with 38 years of paralysis, being raised physically has nothing on being raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Do you see in this physical healing, your own spiritual healing, marveling again at what God has done for you in the gospel, completely unable, and Jesus hunts you down with his grace? Well, friend, the question for you this morning, maybe you'd say, I'm not a Christian. I have questions. But Jesus' words for you this morning are a grace. Do you wish to be made well? Hear the compassionate words of Jesus again. Do you wish to be made well? We're not speaking of a physical healing now. Do you feel your need for the Savior? As you survey your life, what pulls What pools are you looking for for healing? If you're looking for healing outside of Jesus, it's the wrong place. Do you say, if only I could get in? When Jesus Christ this morning in John 5 is compassionately seeking you out and saying to you, do you wish to get well? Man's greatest need, humanity's greatest need is a divine rescue. We need a savior, this Jesus Our greatest issue is sin, not some paralysis, no matter how debilitating it is. And Jesus says to you, the sinner this morning, things like, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He says things to you like, for God so loved the world, in this way that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him, faith shall not perish but have eternal life the Bible says his kindness leads us to repentance what a kindness for you to be confronted with the Savior of John 5 today do you wish to be healed put your faith in him that means to believe side with God against yourself turn from your sin and to Christ well as we continue with verse 9 the second heading we consider the Sabbath Look at verse 9 with me. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. We just see that Jesus heals the man. He tells him to get up, pick up his pallet and walk. He's healed. So the Jews, which refer to the religious elite, the authority, the Pharisees, they want to know who did this. Because, as we read in verse 10, it's not permissible for him to carry his pallet on the Sabbath. Now the man answers with a defense, and that's an important note. This guy's in trouble. The Pharisees are asking him, the, the religious elite, the establishment as it were, you're not supposed to do this. And he's looking to stay away from trouble that is coming, so he answers with a defense. He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. I didn't just pick it up, somebody else told me to do it. And so now he's blaming his benefactor. There was someone else who told me to do it. 
Now they ask him who it was in verse 13. We learn that Jesus slipped away, so the man doesn't know. And we have a book here, the Bible, and the Bible matters. God reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus in its pages. God tells us what he's like in this book, what he's not like, what he loves, what he hates. He tells us how to live. He gives us guidance and direction and wisdom as his people. No wonder the psalmist says things like how blessed is the man who meditates on it day and night. Our God wrote us a book. So where in this book does it say that a man cannot pick up his pallet and walk on the Sabbath? The truth is it doesn't say it. It's not in there. What he did break were the rules of the religious elite of the day. R.C. Sproul, who a, was a faithful pastor and a Bible teacher before he passed a few years ago, he noted in his commentary The rabbis, in their historical interpretation of the law, had enumerated 39 specific types of work that were illegal on the Sabbath day. And the 39th rule of the Sabbath observance, the very last one in the list, was the prohibition against carrying something from one place to another. So he he got hit on number 39. But instead of marveling at the healing of the man, 38 years wholly healed now w-h-o-l healed in front of them instead of marveling they're beside themselves with anger that he had broken one of their rules and more than that whoever it is that told him to do it their anger is rising that's that's even worse that someone told him to do it as i mentioned earlier this healing will set the stage for Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders of the day. In John 5, we start the turn with opposition. Not only that, between chapters 5 and 7, we see his disciples abandoning him. There's more opposition because of his hard sayings. Chapter 7, someone says he has a demon. He was sought for arrest. So opposition begins. It's the current underneath all these chapters. The theme, it's prominent. Instead of faith, Leon Morris says in his commentary, strenuous opposition is aroused among the nation's national leaders because of Jesus' signs. So verse 9 is important. It's a small detail, but it's so important. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. It's nestled right in between those verses. I think about the gifts from yesterday that some of us found ourselves putting together for our kids post-Christmas or, or siblings, or even ourselves. And I've learned over the years that I need to read the instructions or the details better. I'm one of those picture guys. Get something, I can put it together. Looking at the picture, get it done. There's always something that's messed up, and I have to start over. And I realize that the manufacturers make those instructions and give details for a reason. Well, John provides the detail about the Sabbath for a reason. Because it really is the match that starts the fire with the religious leaders of the day. Our text is through 15, but look at verse 16. For this reason, when it's all said and done, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So instead of being happy for this man, the religious leaders are pretty upset, and now they're dishonoring the Lord of the Sabbath. 
by saying he broke the Sabbath, as Matt noted earlier. D.A. Carson notes in his helpful commentary, John briefly mentions that the healing took place on a Sabbath, thereby setting the stage for the confrontation and the discourse that follows. It's no surprise to Jesus. Go back to John 1. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Well, before we move ahead, I just want to draw out a couple things for our consideration Number one, the human heart is wicked. The Bible is clear about this. Ephesians 2, Jeremiah 17, really any page, you flip to any book of the Bible and you're going to see something about the human heart. We see it pictured here in John 5 with the Pharisees who had such a detailed system of works-based righteousness, so immersed in their own rules and pride that they couldn't be happy for a man who was healed after 38 years years no compassion for the man they they had concocted a way a a wrong way abusing the law to declare themselves righteous so in order to keep from breaking the sabbath what do they do they designed 39 rules to help them keep from doing so their rules were obviously a burdensome weight and could not make them righteous before a holy god They needed an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of themselves, someone else's, like all people do. And it would end up being the person that they execute, Jesus. So friend, do you you see yourself here? I'm I'm not talking about you having 39 boxes to check, but I'm talking about the heart of man. Are you here this morning weary from trying to work your way to God? To to buy favor with your working? I've got to clean my life up first and then I'll come to God. Are you tired of checking boxes? Are you exhausted? Well, Matthew 11, 28 speaks grace to you this morning. Come to me. This is Jesus speaking. Another invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's where rest is found. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. No question about it, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So again, I just want to persuade you, Christ invites you and will give you himself as rest. The heart is wicked. Man tries to work his way to God. Are you doing that even this morning? Flee to him. Brother, sister, it's it's, even though we've been born again to a living hope, it doesn't mean that we're not tempted to do the same by trying to work our way to God in some fashion. Maybe it's your quiet time or your Bible memorization or your homeschooling or your home birthing or helping the poor or busyness or fill in the blank. Ask yourselves, examine, is there something in your life that you believe is earning you favor with God? Are you living in this way? And Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, it's actually an indictment on the Pharisees Sobering, this people honors me with their lips, he says in Matthew 15, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now it would be easy with a question like that 
or a statement like that for us to feel the weight knowing that there is self-righteousness in us. That the flesh is there and we're tempted. But we need the gospel again today, brothers and sisters, when we think about this. We never get over the gospel. We need to consider Christ again who is our righteousness. So examine your heart, repent from self-righteousness, confess it as sin, and walk in your identity. You are united to Christ by faith. There is no need to try and earn his favor because you have it already. So the heart is wicked. And then number two, which is certainly related to this, just notice Jesus confronts self-righteous religiosity. So Jesus, Jesus confronts self-righteousness. He, he hates it. In our passage, the established religion of the day was antithetical. I mean, self-righteousness is antithetical to the message of the cross. If we want to really get down into the details, Jesus picked the fight in John 5 when he healed the man on the Sabbath. Jesus didn't just say, rise up. He said, rise up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And he could have waited 24 hours to heal the man, but he didn't. He did it on the Sabbath. He knew what he was doing. You can read through the other Gospels and see that the Sabbath was such a big issue. It's been said from this pulpit that God is honest with us about the Gospel. He tells us what's wrong with us, and he tells us, the truth about where to find rescue. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So here's Jesus, face like a flint, heading to the cross, and he will accomplish the work the Father sent him to do, and he will save a people for the Father by grace. Not through works, not through self-righteous works. And we will be with him where he is so that we will see his glory. So Jesus confronts the self-righteous religiosity. I want us to see that he starts this. And, and you'll see the wave as we walk through John, the rest of John, this opposition. Well, let's consider now, finally, the last section, sin and the Savior in verses 14 and 15. Read with me there. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Well, Jesus healing the man physically was not meant to be the end. It was a tremendous and gracious gift. He was healed after 38 years of being paralyzed. But it's not ultimate. Jesus is after his soul. He's hunting. The man has a soul that can never die, as our catechism tells us. The miracle, the sign of the physical healing is pointing to a greater reality. And so Jesus now confronts him. Remember, according to verse 13, the man didn't know who it was. But now Jesus speaks to him very directly to his soul. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now what does all of this mean? What is Jesus saying? What's he saying about the man's sin? 
as we think about sin and the Savior, is it somehow tied to his suffering? Well, in the original, the sentence stop sinning is implying that the man hasn't stopped sinning. He is continuing in his sin. So are Jesus' words then inferring that the bad thing that has happened, 38 years of being lame, the suffering, is a direct result of a specific sin? Well, before we answer that question, we need to state, and I hope we would all agree, that sickness is generally, I'm using the word generally, a result of the fall. We would say we live in a fallen world where suffering and sin abound, right? Creation groans. We groan. The Bible also doesn't say that every form of suffering is related to a specific sin. You just have to go to John 9. Remember, who sinned? This man or his parents, man born blind? And Jesus says, neither. But it is possible, as D.A. Carson points out, that some ailments are the direct consequences of specific sins. So it is possible, I would say even likely, that in this instance, in this instance, Jesus is pointing out that the man is continuing in the very sin specifically that caused his suffering, the very thing that he was healed from. And so Jesus comes and says, stop sinning, do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. So he's talking about physically nothing worse happens to you. I think he's talking spiritually nothing worse happens to you. If the man continues in his sin, just like anyone in humanity, eternal punishment awaits him. You can see there in chapter 5 verse 29, it will be a resurrection of judgment for the man if he does not cease from sinning better to be sick and lame with Christ than to be healthy physically without him so Jesus is confronting him he wants his soul he's face to face with the Lord of the Sabbath and Jesus is calling the man to a life of faith and holiness the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And after this encounter, the man tells the Jews that Jesus healed him. Did the man believe? I've talked to several of you this week, and I wrestled hard with that question in this passage. Was the man's witness to Jesus, to the Pharisees, to the religious elite, a fruit of saving faith? Is it like the man in John 9 who very clearly said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him? Or is he just making a statement? Or is he being accusatory again? We don't have all the details. There's no words about faith or believing in this passage. Even some commentators are split in their comments of what happened to the man spiritually he was most certainly healed physically the sign we've seen it but spiritually we don't have any information Leon Morris another wonderful helpful commentary writes this the man who had been healed seems to have been an unpleasant creature a way to say it it is obvious from the attitude of the Jews that they were incensed at the breach of the Sabbath 
Yet as soon as he found out the identity of his benefactor, he betrayed him to the hostile authorities. You can see where Leon Morris leans. Did he believe in this passage personally? We don't have the information to assume such a thing. That's not to say that he didn't later, but we have no record of it here. There's no mention of faith. There's no mention of belief. As our brother Matt spoke of last week, I believe at least in the picture of these 15 verses, we see a man who received a tremendous blessing from the hand of Jesus but would not bear witness by faith to him as king. This man, I believe, is again working to find favor with the Jewish leaders by pointing to Jesus as the one who healed him. Here's the thing, regardless of where you end up or whether where I end up with the man, it doesn't change the arrow that John shoots from his bow towards us today. The question is not, did the man believe? Do you believe? You have John 5. You have a lot more than John 5. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? That's the question before us. In the passage... John wants us to see again our great need and an even greater Savior. Now the Sabbath issue we've already spoke about has been raised in John 5 and it's being brought to light here, but it will be superseded by a greater issue, a Christological one that unfolds in verse 17 and 18. I want to read it for you. We'll be close to closing. They are related, but he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. We've read that today. Look at verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, John 5, 1 through 15 certainly flows into these passages. And if we wanted to know what verse 17 meant, We only have to look at verse 18. Now the Jews, Pastor Jordan will pick up on this, but the Jews knew that God did not rest from his work on the Sabbath. Now it would be utter chaos, right? God sustains, he upholds. The issue that grew from the Sabbath is that Jesus made himself equal with God. He said, my father is working and I myself am working So the discourse from verse 19 to the end of the chapter is going to be a Christological clinic from Jesus to the religious establishment. You want to know who I am? This is who I am. We think about John 5. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is who Jesus is, the perfect Son of God. He is our righteousness. His his signs will continue and point to the fact that He is the Son of God, that He is the one who came, that He is the perfect revelation of the glory of God he is who Philip testified to Nathaniel about in John chapter 2 we found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets write Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph the promised one who will save his people from their sins in his coming he's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 we see in our passage to bring good news to the afflicted to bind up the brokenhearted proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. We read it as our call this morning. So many of you prayed it. But he is the servant. 
from Isaiah 42, who opens blind eyes and brings prisoners from their dungeons. In his redemptive activity, which certainly includes his signs and miracles and most certainly, certainly include his cross death and resurrection, he's rolling back, as it were, the curse. I am the resurrection and the life, he says in John 11. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. That's why Jesus can say, verse 17, if my father works on the Sabbath because of who I am, I do too. Case closed. Well, before we close, just a few comments and then I'll pray. Friend, we've already said this once, but I want to leave you again with Jesus' words. My prayer is that these words will haunt you until you believe. Do you wish to be made well? Repent and believe in Christ. He is the Son of God. Do not trample upon His kindness today. Do not presume upon His patience. Put your faith in Christ today. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. He is urgently reminding the sinner that there is coming a day. Wholeness for those who believe and judgment for those who walk away in disbelief. Brothers and sisters, a word from Christ. You have become well. Now he's talking about his physical healing when he meets him again there near the temple. But consider that. Marvel at that. You have become well, spiritually well. Delight in that. Remember the gospel work, his gospel love for you now. You have become well. And then finally, before we close, I just want to say a word to the young people, the teenagers. I'm especially burdened for you. Even last night as I prepped, I remember what it was like to be a a teenager and many of you are walking with Christ and we couldn't be happier, but there are some of you who don't know him and have questions and maybe don't want to know him. I remember what it was like to just want blessing from the hand of who I thought God was but didn't really want him. The kind of things like, oh, please help me with this test tomorrow and then I'll be serious later in the week or I want this, will you please help me get it? And after I get it, I'll follow you. There's a picture of application we can draw from the lame man who received those blessings from the hand of God, Christ himself, and who, according to John 5, is all we know, did not appear to put his faith in Christ. I only wanted to make deals with God at that moment in my life and you don't make deals with God because he's God it's foolish and it wasn't until the day of my junior year in college when however God works that miracle he said rise up and walk and he opened my heart to believe the gospel and see my need and run to Christ and repent of my sin so I just want to say to you to the students John 5 Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath is inviting you again with compassion. That's his disposition toward you. Compassion and mercy and bidding you to come and put your faith in him and repent. But there's also a warning. And out of love, I'll tell you, stop sinning something worse. 
will happen to you. So don't presume on his kindness or presume on his patience with you. Well, with the weight of John 5 upon us, let me just close by reading the last verse of that poem from John Newton. What think you of Christ is the test. This is what he says. If asked what of Jesus I think, I pray we would all be found here. Though still my best thoughts are but poor, I say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all. May we all be found after encounter with Jesus' words, owing to his grace, singing that last verse about our Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for John 5. We thank you for the grace that's bound up there. We thank you for the picture that we see in this miracle, physically pointing to this wonderful, wonderful work of grace that you have done for us, that Christ has saved us. We were helpless, hopeless. The far off ones brought near by the blood of Christ. We praise you for that as your people. And Lord, I pray for those who will not pray for themselves. We pray that you would save souls today. That John 5 would be such grace in that way. A kindness that would lead someone to repentance. That those who continue in their sin would break with their sin. And turn to Christ and put all their trust in him. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would apply this word. Edify your saints and save the lost, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.